Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. On Sunday, White House economic advisor Kevin Hassett said the unemployment rate could hit 16% due to the pandemic shutdowns over the last month. That's according to CNBC. Millions of Americans have lost their jobs or have seen cuts in their paychecks. Some of them are now relying on food banks to help feed their families. Today, where we live, we talk about how Connecticut nonprofits like local food pantries and the state's largest food banks are working to address food insecurity. Coming up, we'll hear from an economist at Cornell about how the pandemic has disrupted the country's food supply. And will the assistant packages recently passed by the federal government help Americans access food? And later, we talk with New Haven's food system director, one of the few municipalities in the country to have this position. First, there have been long lines at food distribution sites around Connecticut. Have you needed to visit a local food pantry or have you volunteered at one? What was your experience like? We want to hear from you. You can join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guests are joining via Zoom today. Nancy Coughlin is CEO of Person to Person, a nonprofit agency operating three food pantries that serve the lower Fairfield County area. Nancy, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Also with us is Carolyn Russell. She's Senior Director of Procurement and Member Services at Connecticut Food Bank. It's one of the largest food banks in the state. Carolyn, welcome to where we live. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. So I'll start with Nancy. I had mentioned uh, food pantries at the top of the show. When we hear about food pantries, people might also think about soup kitchens. How are they different? Um, so soup, soup kitchens will serve hot meals, congregate meals. People will come in together, and um, some of them are set up like a cafeteria. Um, but the idea is that the food is prepared and served to people together. Food pantries, on the other hand, are more like grocery stores. And most pantries now have moved to a self-select model, a client choice model. So it will be set up like a like a little bodega, like a little grocery store where a client can come in, select the food they want. Usually there's a menu that's based on um, a nutritional guideline for what a family would need to meet their nutritional needs. And then from within those categories of protein, dairy, fresh fruits and vegetables, for example, um, the client will choose the foods that they want. Um, that is the model that we use. We have three food pantries. Um, and we can talk also about how food pantries work together with the food banks, because most food pantries get much of the food that they distribute to their clients from food banks. So tell us about the people who have been coming to the person-to-person pantries in your area. When people think about Fairfield County, they think of it as a part of the state with enormous wealth. But talk about some of uh, the equality issues there as well. Well, Connecticut has the largest opportunity gap in the country and also some of the greatest income inequality. And Fairfield County is like a microcosm of that. We have really very real and significant income inequality in our county. The seven towns that we serve include two of our larger cities, Stamford and Norwalk, um, where we have poverty rates of nine or 10 percent. 
um, the Connecticut United Ways use a measure called ALICE, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed, which is intended to measure people who are living above the poverty line, but still not able to make ends meet. And uh, in those two cities, the ALICE level is around 40%. And we have half or more than half of our kids in those cities eligible for free and reduced price lunch. While in the surrounding communities, uh, the suburbs of those cities, there's really great affluence. So many of the people that come to our food pantry um, are from all walks of life, as you would imagine. Some are unemployed. Some are um, have some uh, disability that makes it impossible for them to work to earn a living. Um, many of them are working private um, sector jobs that are just not paying them enough to earn a living wage. So many of them are piecing together part-time work or they're working in the retail industry, the hospitality industry, there are a lot of medical industry jobs that are very low wage jobs that um, sometimes have schedules that are not steady. So it makes it difficult to secure childcare. Many of them don't have benefits. Um, some of them don't even have sick paid time off. So there are people that are just struggling to make ends meet. One of the things that's unique about Fairfield County that's different than other parts of the state and other parts of the country is that because of the wealth we have here, it's a very high cost of living. So. Um, the median household survival budget in Fairfield County for four people is $70,000. That's really the minimum that you need to make in order to live without private or public assistance in Fairfield County. The average Nancy, rent is, Nancy, a, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I just wanted to find out, thank you for laying that out for us, but in terms of when we think about this pandemic over the last month, how have you seen uh, the clientele shifting and how again are you getting the items that you need from say the Connecticut Food Bank? The biggest shift in the people that we've seen coming since in the past six weeks since the pandemic started is the unemployed. So this is the obvious story, right? We know that mm -hmm. with all of the um, the closures and the schools closing, um, many, many people who were employed a month or two ago are now suddenly unemployed um, or furloughed. So there's been a, um, a shift in just the number and the types of people that are coming. Uh, for example, um, dental hygienists. Um, we have a, a person who is a pilot. Um, we have people who were working in the um, hospitality industry and the restaurant industry, which has been very, de um, you know, decimated by the closures. Um, so many, many more people who are working. One of the programs that we offer is financial assistance for rent and security deposits. And uh, the people that are coming and looking for rent has increased over 150% just in the past six weeks. We think we're going to give out more rental aid in the next th four months than we gave out all of last year. Um, and again, it's the same same thing. People that have worked had often two working people in their families are now unemployed and needing to come to food pantries that they never thought they would have to in the past. So Nancy Coughlin, again, CEO of Person to Person, which is a nonprofit agency operating three food pantries in Lower Fairfield County. You mentioned this increased need. What does that mean for your uh, shelves, the items that you've been getting from Connecticut Food Bank? Uh, you know, do you have enough? We have been lucky that we have been able to generate enough support from the community to make sure that we're able to meet the need. We're, are, we're seeing about a 40% increase in demand 
in our food pantries and in, in all, across all three food pantries with spikes. It's been inconsistent. There have been some days we're over 100% in demand. Um, it has been a challenge to secure the food that we need. Um, and I know we're going to talk later in the program about some of the supply chain difficulties that we've been seeing. But what we've done is used the resources that we have, the financial resources that we have to purchase. So our food budget has um, doubled essentially in the past six weeks. We're now spending more on food mm -hmm. in part because um, the food banks are not able to get the food that they need. And in part because across the board, food costs have mm -hmm. increased. There are some spotty areas where people have really just not been able to get the food at all that we need. Uh, Shelf-stable milk is a perfect example. But for the most part, we've been able to get what we need. It's just been tricky. Um, for example, uh, one of the challenges is that all of the food pantries, we all pretty much have the same staple menu. Everybody gives out peanut butter and jelly and tuna fish and pasta and rice and soup. There are some things that every family just needs. So, for example, jelly, for some reason, has been very, very difficult to uh, for us to source. And we ended up purchasing um, some of the tiny little jelly packets that mm. you'd get in a diner that would be on your table in a diner to go with your toast. That's the only jelly we could source. So we ended up purchasing large quantities of these little tiny packets of jelly. Part of that is because uh, food is available that would normally go to restaurants, then the restaurants are now closed. So that food is available, whereas food that you would typically get in the grocery store is harder to come by. Um, but we've been able to do it, but it has been a lot of scrambling. And I know every food pantry is in the same position. Well, I wanted to bring into the conversation now Carolyn Russell, who's Senior Director of Procurement and Member Services at Connecticut Food Bank. Again, this is one of the major food banks in our state. Uh, Carolyn, you were able to hear uh, from Nancy, again, from person to person. Uh, tell us about, again, this need that's increased across the state and how the food bank is trying to address that by getting enough supplies to pantries, because there is a lot of food competition right now. Mm -hmm. There is, um, and actually the this picture that Nancy paints in Lower Fairfield is very similar to what's playing out across the state. We're seeing very large increases in need in all of the service areas that we're in. We're hearing from pantries that they're seeing anywhere between 25% and 150% increases, and the majority of those people that are coming in are people that are new to the food bank industry and they are new to having to go to a food pantry to be able to source food. So that that is definitely something playing out across the state that we are all working together to figure out the best solutions. Um, the food supplies, what we are doing here at Connecticut Food Bank is pretty similar to what person to person is doing. We are purchasing more and more food. We have in the last two months purchased more than we did for the entire year last year. So it, it definitely is something that is a, a bigger challenge. Uh, we are focusing our efforts on those basic pantry staple items that people are really looking for. Um, so we are purchasing things like pasta and rice and peanut butter and those items. Uh, Nancy had mentioned the, the supply chain challenges which is certainly something that we are seeing uh, in all of our retail stores. If you go into the store, there's empty shelves, there's limits on items. Those are exactly the same items that the food banks are trying to source. And so it really is a, a challenge. We are out there put into a situation that we've never been in before, 
where we are competing with retail to purchase food, where so normally we would be getting yeah. donations of food from those retail yeah. donors. So Carolyn, I'm glad that you, you stressed that. So before the pandemic, uh, you're getting a lot of donations. You're not having to go out and buy food from individual grocery stores. Now that's become the norm? That is a, the new norm, unfortunately. And, and we are, we're actually buying from the wholesale level and we are buying from manufacturers directly. Uh, the grocery stores are not able to, to supply the, the quantities that we would need to purchase. So when we are doing purchases, we are purchasing a full tractor trailer load of an item. And so where we're sourcing, we are sourcing at the same places that those retailers are sourcing from. And it definitely creates a whole new level of, of competition and trying to make sure that we are getting what we need so that we can provide enough food to all of our pantries across our service area. You can join our conversation as we talk about food insecurity, especially during this pandemic. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Have you started to rely on a local food pantry because uh, you've lost your job or the money that you're bringing home each uh, week has uh, declined? Or are you a volunteer and you've noticed the increased need at the local food pantry? Again, you can join us 888-720-9677. Uh, James is calling from New Haven. James, go ahead. Hi, how are you doing today? Good, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, I'm the executive director of Loaves and Fishes, and we're New Haven's biggest food pantry. And I I just wanted to speak to the need for a second in that um, we've more than doubled in size, and we're looking, we we know that we're going to grow by another 10 or 15% this next week. And so the need is extensive. And um, I think that people who are listening need to understand how, how many people are affected by this. And I think um, this is a chance for the community to pull together and come up with creative solutions to feed more people and possibly change our food system for the future in how we get food to folks um, and what we really consider what basic needs are for people. Um, it's very interesting to me that a lot of this work has fallen to the nonprofit sector um, and people who are like our organization is almost completely run by volunteers. I only work 15 hours a week and we've had to basically get rid of all of our volunteers because they're over 60 and find new volunteers. And so I think going forward, I think this is an opportunity for the government to take a heightened role in food insecurity and really shining a light on how many people are hungry every month, even before the COVID crisis, here in New Haven and across the state. Well, thank you, James, for bringing up those important points. We're going to be talking more about uh, some of the supposed uh, assistance programs that's supposed to be helping in this pandemic. That'll be coming up later on the show. But I wanted to go back uh, to Carolyn Russell from the Connecticut Food Bank, because we've heard about the increased need from pantries in New Haven and also Nancy Coughlin's pantries in the lower Fairfield County area. So how does the Connecticut Food Bank coordinate the supplies that you have to make sure that you can get particular items to particular pantries? So the first thing I would like to say is that the the pantries are doing an absolutely amazing job filling in. As James had indicated, many of the pantries that we serve are running with just volunteers 
and many of those volunteers are in the high risk older age category. So they're having to find new people to do what they do and change pretty much everything that they do to operate right now. And it's, it's truly remarkable. And that is really part of how Connecticut Food Bank is able to get the food to the people that need the food is that we have this network of agencies, network of pantries and soup kitchens across our six county service area that are every day out there seeing what the needs are. Uh, we, we bring in as much food as we possibly can and agencies do have slightly different needs in some areas of the state based on their based on their clients. And they are able to go into an online ordering system and order just those items that they really need. And so we are working very, very diligently to make sure that we are able to continue supplying those particular items so that the pantries can get what they need and get those things out to those clients. Uh, there, there really is just a lot of, a lot of work at that, at that ground level where these agencies are just stepping up and, and are truly remarkable. Well, let me honest. go back to, let me go back to Nancy Coughlin, CEO of Person to Person. Uh, Nancy, tell us about, um, you know, when you've been in touch with the Connecticut Food Bank, uh, do you see um, some places, uh, some gaps that need to be filled in terms of communication with local pantries? Um, so it has been a very rocky six weeks. And I think that this pandemic has turned everybody upside down on their heads. Everybody has scrambled. We, we really scrambled to change up our business model. One of the biggest changes is that we needed to make everything contactless, which is totally different than the way I described the work we do at the beginning with this client choice model where people, we welcome people into our pantries. We're not doing everything curbside. Um, so all the pantries have shifted. The Connecticut Food Bank has shifted. It's we we are learning as we go, and I want to echo what James said that this has really shown us where the weaknesses are and where the cracks are. And under the best of circumstances, we have a a, a system that was working pretty well. But in this situation, this is a this pandemic is a huge problem, and it requires really big answers and big solutions. And I and I echo James's. Um, passion for this work. And I hope that when we come out the other end, we'll be able to to see how we can improve the systems that we have. I do want to say there are a lot of, um, in the nonprofit world, generally, a lot of nonprofits have been shuttered along with the business community. So childcare centers, arts organizations, um, people that have physical spaces that they can no longer have people congregating in, They've a lot of them are nonprofits that overnight really had to stop their normal business. Many of them, at least in Fairfield County, shifted their focus to meeting people's basic needs. So many, many nonprofits who never provided food or gift cards before have been raising money to provide food and gift cards to people and medical supplies to people and PPE. So the nonprofit community is very nimble, very able to shift gears quickly, pivot quickly to meet the need. But um, it has been a struggle. It has absolutely been a struggle, Um, similar to the rest of the the economy. Um, So I think we're we're working as hard as we can. But I do think that um, I would love to see us figure out how we can do better if we're ever, heaven forbid, in a similar situation in the future. Well, we're going to continue this conversation here on Where We Live, but I want to thank Nancy Coughlin again for joining us, CEO of Person to Person, a nonprofit operating three food pantries in Lower Fairfield County. Nancy, thank you for your time today. Thank you.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Staying with us is Carolyn Russell, Senior Director of Procurement and Member Services at Connecticut Food Bank. Coming up, we're going to learn more about the disruptions the nation's food supply chain is experiencing and how it affects us here in Connecticut. We'll also take your calls. If you're waiting to be on, just keep holding, and you can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. What's your trip to the grocery store looking like now that the state has been shut down for more than one month? Is it still hard to get certain staples? If you've recently lost your job, have you had to lean on the local food pantry for supplies? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Live. Uh, With Zoom. Carolyn Russell, Senior Director of Procurement and Member Services at Connecticut Food Bank. And Doug from Glastonbury has a question. Uh, Doug, go ahead. Yes, good morning, Lucy. Uh, my question is, um, yeah, if, if uh, some of your listeners might have uh, funds available that they could donate, does it make more sense to donate cash to the food bank or in uh, cases or cans of, of food directly? Great question, Doug. Uh, Carolyn, how can listeners help? Uh, So I think as far as food donations, it really is very important for people to to direct those food donations to their local pantries and their local soup kitchens. If you can get that food to them, that's really a great way to do that. Financial donations coming to the food banks will allow us to continue to bring in larger volumes of food as this continues there are you know, some long lead times. And so people donating food directly to the pantries is really gonna be helpful in getting them through the next couple of weeks until some more of these other programs are able to open up and, and get that food stream going a little bit better on the food, at, the food bank side of things. Steve's calling from New Haven. Steve, what's your question or comment? Hi, uh, my name is Steve Morland. I'm the executive director at Downtown Evening Soup Kitchen where we run a uh, food pantry as well as a nightly dinner program. Uh, so we work closely with people like James from Loaves and Fishers, who just called in. Um, but at our soup kitchen, we're also seeing a greater need for additional services beyond just food. Uh, Carolyn mentioned a few moments ago that many businesses have been shuttered. That's also true for a lot of the nonprofits and social services agencies that are typically providing services for the homeless population. So I just want to take a quick moment just to give a shout out to not only our staff and our volunteers at Downtown Evening Soup Kitchen, but also some of our partners at Community Soup Kitchen, Sunrise Cafe in New Haven, for maintaining this critical lifeline through food to those who are unsheltered and still on the street right now. Mm. Well, thank you uh, for your call, Steve. Uh, you know, before we uh, pivot and talk more about uh, what's happening with our nation's food supply, uh, Carolyn, this, this, these disruptions that are impacting uh, from farms to grocery stores and distributors to local food pantries, uh, how have you had to shift your operation during the pandemic uh, because of social distancing when you're trying to get food uh, to particular pantries or even organizing a bigger distribution sites, Carolyn? So what we're doing here at Connecticut Food Bank is observing social distancing. So we are still doing our deliveries to our local pantries. 
we are requiring our drivers to wear masks and gloves and asking that all of our agencies provide a clear path for them so that they are not within six feet of of individuals, volunteers, or staff at those food pantries when they're making those deliveries. We are making sure that all of our warehouse crew are also following those same food safety guidelines and wearing masks and gloves and doing everything we possibly can to continue our operation while still observing social distancing and, and ensuring the safety of our staff and our volunteers, as well as those that are coming in from the pantries so that they are able to continue to do what they do. We, we need them out there and we need them to be able to continue to be safe while they're getting food out to those clients that they're seeing. We heard earlier uh, from a caller in New Haven that says that a lot of their volunteers are over 65 and so they haven't been able uh, to use them because of that this uh, virus is is uh, so deadly for people of a certain age. Uh, but in terms of, you know, trying to keep volunteers or finding new volunteers, is that has that been an issue? I We're finding it at Connecticut Food Bank, our volunteer stream is still coming in. We have some of our regular volunteers that have been with us for years and years, and they're still coming in daily. We also have new volunteers that are coming in every day. So people are out there and people want to help. And I know that many of our pantries, you know, as I had said before, really are relying on that older group of people that have been volunteering with them for decades sometimes. And they are, they are finding that people are stepping in and that people are out there and want to help. And so we are able to continue doing what we do because people in the community are really stepping up at both the food pantry and at the, at the food bank here. I wanted to bring into the conversation now Andy Novakovich, professor of agricultural economics at Cornell University. Uh, Andy, welcome to the show. Andy, can you hear me? Oh, I don't think Andy can hear us oh, on oh, Zoom. No, I'm here. Oh, okay. I'm here. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right, Andy, again, uh, uh, calling in from uh, Cornell University. So we've been talking about this increased need, uh, whether um, it's from food banks or local food pantries, or even when uh, many of us are going to the grocery store and there are certain staples that are not on our shelves. Uh, at, at first, uh, we thought we'd heard anecdotally that this was because people were uh, hoarding food at the start of this pandemic. But can we talk now about what we've been able to to see through this last month, how is this pandemic disrupting our food system that will impact the items getting to the grocery stores and even getting to local food pantries, Andy? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, the first thing I, I, I like to say when I start, and it's always kind of how much water is in the glass kind of question, but uh, I would say we ought to begin by, by understanding that the response uh, by the industry to what is a, a totally unprecedented challenge, I would say uh, has been remarkable. And, and of course, that's there's so many stories like that. You heard them earlier in terms of food assistance programs, what's happening in medical care and so on. I and I would say the food industry also has done a remarkable job of dealing with an entirely unexpected and unprecedented situation. Um, uh, I guarantee you all kinds of food companies plan for local problems, but nobody sits around with a, with a three-ring binder on what to do when the <laughs> national pandemic hits. Having said that, uh, there certainly are challenges, and there are a couple of things intrinsically that uh, make the current environment particularly difficult. Uh, one is uh, 
you know, think about your garden if if you have one. Uh, not every product is produced every day. Uh, the only one that is is milk. Uh, cows produce milk uh, three or four times a day. Mm. Plant foods uh, tend to be produced once a year, uh, and so and and of course the main harvesting season is in the, in the fall. So getting a lot of groceries into stores is a challenge when you're out of season and when international trade is disrupted. Uh, um, about half or so of the fruits that we consume are imported. Uh, about 25, 30% of the vegetables we consume are imported. Uh, some of these are foods that we don't even grow in the U.S., like a banana, uh, but some of them are just southern hemisphere crops that, that we bring in in the winter. And so there's only the beginning of harvesting that's occurring now for, for fruits and vegetables in the South. And one of their challenges has been uh, getting labor. Uh, these mm. are uh, typically highly labor-intensive uh, uh, harvesting uh, situations, and worker availability has been a real challenge for uh, growers uh, as a general rule. But uh, now even more so where uh, perfectly legal immigrant workers have been stuck in their home countries and not even able to come. Mm. Uh, and of course, uh, there's also Andy... concerns about mm -hmm. among workers about getting um, uh, the disease. And Andy, so uh, are people getting, Andy, can you hear me? Andy, can you hear me? Um, so yes. when you talk about uh, there are people that are stuck in their home countries and have unable to come here to work, but in terms of when we're looking at local farms, uh, maybe in the south, are there situations where workers are also getting sick and so there's even a more uh, decline in labor? I haven't heard a lot of reports of that, but uh, we certainly have heard of workers who are concerned about that and uh, perhaps not showing up or uh, doing some things to, to try to mitigate their, their own risk. Most uh, growers uh, are clearly are sensitive to this too. And uh, across various different uh, processing as well as uh, uh, farm environments, uh, varying degrees of precautions are being taken. For example, on the, in the dairy sector, I would say that's probably at the far end of taking a lot of precautions, which has to do with the fact that dairy is a product that has a lot of precautions in place mm. normally just for food safety reasons. Meatpacking, as we've heard about, mm. uh, has been probably on the other end of the spectrum. A very difficult environment to control and, and perhaps one that uh, didn't take it as seriously mm. as they should. Andy, uh, um, when, when we think about the food that is either brought in or even packaged uh, with distributors, I'm thinking about all of the colleges and schools that have closed, uh, restaurants are closed. And so as part of this supply chain issue, the fact that uh, things are packaged in a way that it doesn't need to then sell it at a grocery store or hand it over to a local food pantry? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, there are some foods that we tend to consume uh, in far greater quantities at home. And, and maybe the poster child for that is beverage milk. Uh, we serve milk to our kids at home. Some of us drink milk at home. When we go to restaurants, we don't, and even for children. Uh, other foods uh, are, are much more heavily food service. In fact, uh, higher cuts of meat tend to be consumed more in restaurants. Uh, cheeses, 60% uh, or more of the cheese we make in the United States is consumed in restaurants or institutional settings, similarly for butter. Uh, so 
the whole industry has been designed with the expectation of certain volumes going in this direction, certain volumes going in that direction. And I guarantee you, there is no business that has said, hey, what do you say we invest in a bunch of packaging equipment that uh, we might not need ever, but maybe it might come in handy if we have a pandemic. And nobody does that. And so you have packaging restrictions. You also have labeling restrictions. Food service packages not only are big, they don't have nutrition labels on them. They don't have UPC codes on them. And so USDA has had to scramble to figure out how to assist in reducing some of the regulatory rules to, to make that feasible. Uh, and uh, plants have been uh, trying to get creative and figuring out how they can adapt mm -hmm. uh, uh, whom they sell to and in, and in what form. Uh, Carolyn Russell is still with us uh, from the Connecticut Food Bank. Uh, Carolyn, uh, you're, I wanted you to, to jump in in terms of when we're hearing about uh, dairy farms that have to be dumping milk because, again, there's not that increased uh, institutional need out there. Um, is the Connecticut Food Bank trying to partner up with some local farms or figuring out ways where if restaurants are getting industrial size uh, uh, boxes or products of, of a type of food that they can't be using, is there some way to get it to local food banks and pantries? So we actually are getting donations of milk. We just a week and a half ago got a tractor trailer load of uh, fresh milk and half gallons that came through a donation from the DFA, uh, which is the Dairy Farmers Association. We have another load of that coming in this week as well. Um, there, there are definitely ways that we are working with the dairy industry and working with our local dairy companies to try to secure that, that product. Um, milk is one of the things that we really try to make sure that we have on hand at the food bank. Many times we, we use shelf-stable milk. It's a lot easier for some of the pantries to deal with, and they can take larger volumes of it and have it stored. But right now we are seeing a lot of refrigerated milk, and it is moving very, very quickly through the pantry system. It is really an important item. So we are very happy to get that and very happy to work with the local dairy farmers and the local processors in the area. Uh, earlier, Andy Novakovich again, who was a professor of agricultural economics at Cornell University. Earlier, a caller called in and said, you know, the federal government really needs to take the lead on this. Uh, I'm thinking uh, to the program SNAP that uh, many Americans, uh, that millions of Americans rely on, uh, that that number is expected to grow because of the unemployment rate, because so many people are, are dealing with uh, financial, um, you know, decline uh, in their homes. And so I'm just wondering, when we look at the CARES Act and other federal assistance that has passed recently, um, how will that impact this issue of food insecurity? Well, you know, the again, it's kind of like the, how, how much water is in the glass. Uh, we've been uh, allocating a lot of additional funding to a variety of programs, but uh, it's, it's hard to keep up with the need. Uh, federal funding uh, has been increased by almost $9 billion for child nutrition programs, which includes the various school feeding programs. There's also some senior citizen programs that come under that package. There's an additional $16 billion that's been allocated for SNAP. And in addition, there's been a relaxation of rules with respect to qualification and work requirements and things of that nature. Uh, there's been about a billion dollars uh, allocated for the emergency food assistance program. Uh, there's almost a billion dollars that's been allocated for women, infants, and children. 
so there's been a lot of new money that's that's come into it. And uh, in addition, industry, as was mentioned with the example of the fluid milk donations, is also rising to this with with uh, donations out of their own pocket. But uh, all as as wonderful as all that is, uh, it it <laughs> the need. Uh, is running faster uh, than our ability to keep up with it. Uh, what are some uh, long-term uh, solutions, uh, Andy, that uh, the food system should be looking at? Again, uh, no one anticipated the pandemic of this magnitude. Uh, as you mentioned, the food is there. It's just a matter of the distribution and getting it to these uh, different areas. And so when you look at what's been going on, uh, what are some things that might be worth uh, looking into more in the future? Well, you know, this is a question that uh, all of us are asking. Uh, and, uh, and it's very tempting to say, oh, my goodness, we now realize uh, things that we should have been doing all along or would be really helpful to have in the future. But uh, I think there's a real serious question as to whether or not that nail is going to slide back in the old hole or we really are going to do something different. Um, if we think, for example, about 9-11, uh, people became very nervous about air travel, and many thought that, oh, my goodness, we'll never fly on a plane again. And instead, we instituted some changes, and air travel has boomed, and of course, until recently. Uh, I think the key thing, if we're going to have changes in how we evaluate and prepare for risks in the food industry, is going to be whether or not the government comes in to finance this, because a piecemeal approach, industry by industry, company by company, would be quite expensive and almost illogical to assume that uh, an individual company would adopt measures to increase their flexibility uh, when it, the expectation of needing it uh, would be relatively low. And so th this really hinges, I think, on uh, particularly federal leadership to say we need to minimize risk even further. Well, I want to thank you again, Andy Novakovich, for joining Where We Live Today, Professor of Agricultural Economics at Cornell University. Also with us today was Carolyn Russell, Senior Director of Procurement and Member Services at Connecticut Food Bank, again, one of the major food banks in our state. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Our previous guest, Nancy Coughlin, uh, messaged us that End Hunger CT has seen five times increase in SNAP applications. Uh, we'll make sure that we follow up uh, in the next couple of months to see uh, the increase increased need here in our state. Uh, coming up right after the break, we're going to look at how the city of New Haven is looking at food systems and better coordination. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We heard coordination between food growers, distributors, and food banks has been challenged in this pandemic. Some cities like New Haven have focused on improving food systems coordination to reduce food insecurity long before this pandemic. To tell us more on Zoom today is Latha Swamy, Food Policy Director for the City of New Haven. Latha, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So tell us about this this food policy director position. I understand it's it's one of just a few in the country. Uh, tell us about the, the role that you play. 
Yeah, so it's a pretty unique role. There are only about 25 of us around the country that mm -hmm. fill this um, municipal role within city government. And this um, position is really, uh, was created in 2016 in the city of New Haven to fill a role of kind of having a 30,000 foot level view of food systems and policy related issues in New Haven and connecting them to state and federal policy issues. Um, what I do is I try to work with community partners. Um, I really rely on coalition building because um, I am a very small department of one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I connect our community partners work um, across the board to try to streamline, especially during this emergency, um, our emergency food efforts. Um, that's one piece. But typically, a lot of my work focuses on policy issues, um, whether it's institutional or organizational policies and practices, um, but also local um, legislation, state and federal legislation, and even international agendas. Um, so during the COVID public health emergency, I've really shifted a lot of my work toward the emergency food response. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us about that. So what is a, it's been more than a month now that the state of Connecticut has been shut down. So this shift that you've uh, had to undergo, uh, tell us about a typical day. How are you coordinating uh, certain soup kitchens and pantries and getting maybe some local food from farms or distributors uh, to these pantries? Yeah. So again, because I am a division of one, I rely heavily on my community partners. So they're really doing a lot of the on the ground work. Okay. Um, what I'm trying to do um, at this moment is um, we did have this great uh, kind of system that um, community partners and I were setting up early on um, called the Coordinated Food Assistance Network, CFAN. And this is a network of emergency food providers and other individuals interested in the emergency food system in New Haven. And that has played a really big role um, during this time. Um, what we're doing, you know, for example, talk, you know, referring back to the supply chain issues that we were uh, talking about earlier in the show, um, community partners and emergency food providers in New Haven have been reporting challenges in procuring enough food especially through the food bank for the variety of reasons that have been mentioned already on the show. Um, so because of this, we are really needing to step up and be creative right now. And we're trying to connect um, different parts of the supply chain to our emergency food providers. So as we've already mentioned, universities, large institutions um, have closed or significantly reduced their operations um, farms also provide another opportunity. Um, so a lot of the emergency food providers in New Haven have been working to procure food directly with some local distributors and um, we're, and local farms are providing food to mutual aid networks. And we're working hard to kind of make these connections um, out, you know, outside of the limitations that we are finding. Mm. Um and so oh. that's been that's been really helpful, but mm -hmm. it's still a, a great challenge because, as we mentioned before, all of this costs money, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, when you uh, mentioned uh, the CFAM, this Coordinated Food Assistance Network uh, that was created several months ago, um, if that hadn't been in place, do you feel like your job today would be even harder to connect these food pantries and soup kitchens again with these local distributors? Uh, oh my goodness, yes, definitely much harder. I am very thankful for its existence. And actually, James, who called in earlier, and Steve, who called in earlier, are both um, a part of the uh, CFAN and, and big parts of it, right? Because they are playing big roles in the um, emergency food system in New Haven, along with tons of other um, emergency food providers and individuals. Um, and it definitely would be a lot harder if this did not exist uh, prior to this emergency. So we've been very lucky to have this structure in place. Um, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same challenges as the other cities are seeing, just like Nancy was mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think, oh, go ahead. Uh, Litha, I, we had talked about how I think you're the only, New Haven's the only uh, municipality in our state that has a, a food policy director. Uh, there's just a, a handful across the country. And so in terms of some of these challenges that pantries and other parts of our state are dealing with, I mean, what is your um, advice for municipalities as they're trying to address the needs uh, within their local communities? Yeah, so one thing I I think, you know, a lot of the things that were mentioned previously on the show really um, it's it's great kind of uh, ideas for how to work around um, some of the bottlenecks that we're seeing in the supply chain. One thing that I think could be important for municipalities, specifically thinking about city officials and um, looking at the policy perspective I think it's easy to be awed by the scale of kind of the humanitarian endeavor endeavor that is rolling out. Um, But I think it's really important for us to think about the causes of the inequities that fuel this massive demand. So if we look at policy issues, we have to think about, you know, uh, kind of tying in um, what Andy was saying and what James brought up, the role of government. You know, back in the 1980s, um, President Reagan began promoting the notion that voluntary kind of um, private charity could fill in the gap of social safety nets, um, as opposed to having kind of strong social policy from the federal government. And I think this is kind of what we're seeing in um, our landscape right now, kind of the weakening of social safety nets um, and this heavy reliance on the emergency food system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one thing that municipalities could really do is advocate on the state and federal level for important policy changes around um, trying to get at the root of these systemic injustices. So thinking about increasing um, wages and thinking about worker rights and economic security. That way we think about um, you know the long-term planning of upstream policies actually providing support so that you would actually make an impact on reducing the number of people who would rely on food banks in the first place. So I think that's kind of the long term, something that municipalities could really um, kind of share with their state and um, federal um, uh, representatives to get some of that pushed forward in the long term as, you know, we'll see more people on SNAP benefits and applying for Mm. other um, safety net uh, assistance. 
You mentioned SNAP. Uh, Connecticut Mirror reported that the state of Connecticut's um, not among nearly 12 states that actually allow SNAP recipients to use online ordering. Uh, that could be a policy that could be maybe changed in the future, Litha? Yes, exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up. So that is something that I'm actively working on in New Haven. Um, two pieces. Um, I'm working with Congresswoman Deloro's office to um, you know, strongly advocate for the expansion of this online SNAP purchasing um, to be rolled out in Connecticut. It's limited to a few states right now. So that's really something that uh, the federal government could allow for this rolling out um, in, in more states um, and allowing for more retailers to accept um, SNAP purchasing online. Another thing we're working on is um, we are looking for we're, we're working actively with some private sector partners who are one of the few people who do accept SNAP benefits uh, online. And they currently don't deliver to New Haven, but we're, you know, this is part of my work, making those connections. So I'm making those connections and we're working out how the city can support um, with the resources to expand their delivery uh, geography into New Haven, especially to neighborhoods that are um, experiencing a lot of the um, economic impacts either prior to the pandemic and even more so now. Um, so we're hoping to, in the short term, roll out a pilot program that would be, um, you know, expanding grocery deliveries in New Haven for people who are able, uh, who use SNAP benefits. And then in the long term, we're working on this um, policy advocacy piece of rolling out the online SNAP purchasing for Connecticut overall. Well, we want to thank Latha Swamy for joining us today, Food Policy Director for the City of New Haven. Latha, thank you. Thank you. Today is show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>